I'm going to ask you to do something that I may never ask you to ever do again before I preach. I'm going to suggest that the best way to experience and participate in this message is to take your Bibles and close them. Now, this is not to be an illustration that we are not going to be in them, but rather I have presented all of the Scripture verses we're going to walk through on the screen behind me. And you don't have to do this. This is not like a command, and I'm demanding you to do it. I'm just suggesting that you might be better served if you close your Bible and work through this text without looking ahead, with not reading ahead. And for any of you that have ever heard this story before, I want all of us to experience it as if we were hearing this for the first time as Matthew's audience in the first century, reading to this portion of the Gospel of Matthew and getting to this story and working through each line to see what in the world is going on. So that's my suggestion. You can take it or leave it. But like I said, all of the Scripture verses will be on the screen behind me. We are in Matthew chapter 15. We're going through the Gospel of Matthew. We have seen the birth of Jesus. We have then fast-forwarded to the life of Jesus as an adult, and we saw him get baptized by John the Baptist. And then John the Baptist was arrested, as we're going to see today. And then after that being arrested, Jesus withdraws. Then we see the Sermon on the Mount. Then we see some miracles. One of them in particular that's worth mentioning is he healed a Roman soldier named a centurion. And not just him, but his child that he was um, asking healing for. There's a lot of parallels between that story and this one. Jesus gave instructions to his disciples at one point in Matthew chapter 10. And in those instructions, he talks about how we're only sticking to Jewish regions. Around the Sea of Galilee, we're only going to Jewish people. We're not heading outside. They're very focused in on that mission. And we'll see that again in this text today as well. As to Jesus' mission and focus to zero in, narrow his focus on Israelites. And then um, Jesus starts getting in a lot of controversy. And so what we've seen is continued, repeated conflict, growing opposition. And so let's just start diving in, and hopefully you'll see what I mean by taking this one bit at a time. So the first verse, verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And so I have underlined and bold print, if you want to go back to the key words here. From there, I want to ask the question, from where? And the answer is Galilee, which would be 30, 50 miles away. And then I want to ask the question, too, what does the word withdraw mean? Because if we're following the story of Jesus, and I just said there's growing opposition, we notice every time in the Gospel of Matthew the word withdrawal is used, it's under difficult circumstances where people are trying to kill Jesus. So let's just run through them real quick. Jesus was a baby, and in a dream, his dad, Joseph, stepdad that is, was warned not to return to Herod, so they withdrew. That's the first time we see it. Then in chapter 4, when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, shortly after that, John the Baptist is arrested, 
And so then there's opposition growing against Jesus and his cousin John the Baptist, and so he withdrew. Next text, Matthew chapter 12. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus finds out about that, is aware of it, and so he withdrew. And one more, what we saw just recently in the last chapter, when Jesus heard this, is what it says, what was the this that he heard? He heard about John the Baptist getting beheaded, and so he withdrew. So Jesus withdraws again in our text, Matthew chapter 15, verse 21, and Jesus went away from there, where? Galilee, and he withdrew. Why is there opposition? Well, last week's message was Matthew 15, 1 through 20, and there are Pharisees coming from Jerusalem, making a commute for two to three days in order to confront Jesus about his breaking the tradition of the elders, the tradition of the Jewish people. Jesus is not following their man-made rules because their man-made rules are causing them to disobey God's rules and commands. That's last week. There's opposition, and in fact, the text continues. If you look at the next screen here, you see the Pharisees were offended when they heard about this, and so Jesus says, well, they're a bunch of blind guides. Don't listen to them. I don't care that I offended them. That's, that's called opposition. Things are getting more tense around Jesus, so the next story we find is Jesus leaving there, namely Galilee, and moving to the district of Tyre and Sidon. So we have a map for you. Hopefully this is helpful, especially for any of you that were downstairs. Where is Tyre and Sidon? It's modern-day Lebanon. So we just had a group of people from our church, five different folks, go on a trip to do ministry in Lebanon. Tyre and Sidon would be just south of Beirut, so we just saw pictures of beautiful Beirut, and we heard from the presentation this morning that Lebanon is gorgeous. Notice it's right on the water there. Tyre and Sidon are port cities. They were wealthy. We're talking, um, as the quote was earlier this morning, it's the Paris of the Middle East. It's lush. It's gorgeous. It's a wonderful place to live and visit in some respects, but now in modern day it is torn by war, and it is sad, and there are much needs and prayers, as our team just explained. So it's, it's, it's a coincidence. I didn't plan this, by the way, that we'd have Lebanon morning downstairs, and then Jesus is going to Lebanon in our sermon upstairs. So this is where Jesus is going. Now, why is he going there? It is not to do missions work, as we're about to find out. It is not to spread the gospel. It is to withdraw. It is to retreat. It is to get away from the opposition in Galilee. So if you want to think about this map, Look right here. This is everywhere we've been reading about. Jesus has been here for basically the last several chapters. On either this side or this side or in different areas around here. So this is about 30 to 50 miles for him to go up. And he's going up to Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon would have been a Gentile, non-Jewish community. And that's where Jesus goes to retreat. Verse 22 begins with, and behold. Why would you use this word to tell a story? Because something startling is about to happen. Something significant. Get a hold of this. Behold. Open your eyes. Wake up. Something's happening in this story that's startling. What is it going to be? The next line. A Canaanite. Behold, a Canaanite. If you read your Bible a lot, you might be like, 
Okay, so what? <laughs> a Canaanite. Not so what? By the time Matthew is writing this, nobody uses this word. It is like going around African Americans and using a very derogatory N-word. It has fallen out of favor. This word is never used in literature around the first century. In fact, it is the only time it's used in the New Testament anywhere. Behold, a Canaanite. Maybe there's even like a hiss, you know, behind it. You need to feel the cultural sting behind the usage of this language. Mark has a similar story to this very same account. He does not call it a Canaanite. This is the only reference to Canaanite. Mark says this is a Syro-Phoenician uh, woman. So talking about the same region that she's from, but doesn't use the slur of the Canaanite. Strike one of behold, something startling pops up. Second strike, we not only have a Canaanite, but we have a woman. And this is no offense to any of you women, but we need to remember, if we're hearing this in the first century, we are in a culture of male-dominated society where women do not vote, they have no rights, they have no respect. So it is not just a Canaanite, it is a Canaanite woman. And what is she doing she is from that region, so we know that this Canaanite woman is not part of a Jewish community. We know that the Canaanites were the persistent enemies of the people of God. One quotation from Josephus, a historian around the time in the writing of Matthew, said, these people were our bitterest of enemies. Do you get the idea? Jesus is a Jew with some Jewish men, mostly. And he is now interacting with one of the most bitter enemies of the Jewish people. And she is there crying. And crying does not do it justice. She is screaming. I did all kinds of study on this word because it is so helpful for you to get the picture painted. You have a Canaanite woman who is screaming continual repetition of, will you not just shut up? You know, like this is bothersome and the story will make this plain. This is an urgent cry. It is one of those words that's an onomatopoeia. It's a raven's piercing cry when something shrieks or as one commentator said, inarticulate shouts that express deep emotion. Jesus is experiencing opposition. He withdraws to a region where there will be no Jews and Pharisees because they don't mix with Gentiles. He's trying to retreat. And some woman finds out that he's there. She comes to him and she is uncontrollably, continually, loudly crying. And she's saying these words. Have mercy on me, O Lord, or Master, or Sir. It's just a respectable word. It doesn't necessarily mean it's deity being associated with it. It's just Sir, Master. But then Son of David? 
a Canaanite woman saying, son of David? This means she knows something about him. That's the phrase for the king. That's the phrase for the Messiah. She must have caught wind that this man has power and that this man can do something about her need. And her need is not her own physical need. It is about her daughter. So we know she is a Canaanite. We know she is a woman. We know that she is upset. And we know that she is a mother. And now all of the moms and dads and anybody that has loved ones should start to relate. Why is she screaming? Because her daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, we could spend time talking about demon oppression and what it is and isn't, and today's not that day. Here's what we need to realize, that it's all over the gospel stories, this idea of oppression and tormenting of demons. Not possession, per se, and tormenting, oppression. The the translation here is good. Every time you hear about this kind of evil tormenting that's being described in the gospel stories, there is never an adverb before it except this one instance. This is why the story begins with, behold, and then starts using things that aren't anywhere else in the rest of the New Testament. Behold, there is a woman who is a Canaanite who is screaming because her daughter is severely oppressed. The only time an adverb is before the description of demonizing. That's just one word in the Greek, oppressed by a demon. Demonized. She's being afflicted by some kind of evil force. Did it have physical manifestations? We don't know. Did they sometimes? Yes, they did. Could it have just been internal? Yes, it could. Again, long little lecture we could give on it, but there's the key word, severely. Moms, dads, brothers, sisters, friends who love somebody that's hurting, Put yourself in this woman's shoes. She is desperate. Deeply upset and desperate. And she finds out that this man, Jesus, who's been performing all kinds of miracles, exercising all kinds of demons and helping relieve oppression just like what her daughter has, is just begging repeatedly to Jesus. So what is Jesus going to do? Now, so far in the story, we've seen him just heal all kinds of people. So your expectation would be, of course, he's he's going to heal her, right? Behold. Verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. Moms, dads, this is your only hope. And you go to him, and he ignores you. Like, really let this sink in, friends. Don't skip ahead to the end of the story. Just feel the weight of Jesus ignoring you. He did not respond with a single word. The way it's written is to describe like he was not paying attention to her. So she keeps talking. She keeps demanding. And so then the next 
slide should show the disciples are now tired of it because now they're coming, she's coming to him. And they're begging Jesus and then the disciples. And so the disciples come to Jesus and say, can you send her away for she is now crying after us. Like, it's now bothering us. Like, it's one thing that is bothering Jesus. It's like, now she's like asking us, hey, can you help somehow? And so now the disciples are saying, send her or set her free. And I don't think it means shoosh her away. I think by now, if you're getting the story, she's not just going to quickly go away. I think he, the disciples are saying, Jesus, just do your thing, okay? Can you just do the miracle already? Because we're getting tired of it and she's now bothering us. That's the scene. And the word send is the same word used for loosening or setting something free. It's actually the same word used to talk about divorce from a marriage covenant. To set free from a marriage is when you get divorced. You're no longer in the covenant. Set her free. Don't just shoosh her away. They're saying, Jesus, heal her. She is crying for the screaming is getting too much. Look at the next slide. And he answered. Now, for some of you, if you've never heard this story before, what do you think he's going to say? What is he going to say to his disciples when they're saying, Jesus, this is getting too much. We can't handle it anymore. Would you do something? He responds. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm ignoring her because this is not my problem right now. That's not what I was expecting. I was only sent for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Of Israel. It seems as if the woman hears this. The answer seems to be a response to the disciples, but it was said loud enough, and she's there, obviously, that she hears this. And look at the way verse 25 tells us the next part of the story. She came and she knelt or prostrated. Imagine the woman now just straight on her face. If she wasn't already, she is now just on her face, potentially just straight up prostrate, lying on the ground. I mean, maybe the best thing I could imagine is like one of my toddler children doing like a temper tantrum. That might best describe the picture here. And now continues to say again and again, Lord, help me. Have you ever gone and asked for a favor? And you got the impression that they weren't really interested and you're just kind of like, all right, fine. This woman's not just asking for a favor. I mean, she is begging and screaming for Jesus to do something. And the immediate response is kind of like, yeah, I'm not interested. But this lady's different. She is persistent. She is determined. She is desperate. So how does Jesus answer her after the second time we hear her crying out to him? 
What's your guess? Again, some of you might know this story, but if you've never heard this story before, your general thought is that Jesus is a nice guy. That's the general consensus. He loves to do healings and miracles. Like, of course, he's going to just heal her, right? Oh, thank you for your persistence. I've now opened my eyes to see your great need. I'm going to help you now. Behold. Look how Jesus responds. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. If you're wondering, did Jesus just kind of subtly call her a dog? You are correct. If you're wondering, is that a compliment in the first century? It is not a compliment. It was normal for Jewish people to call their enemies, namely the Canaanites, the bitterest of their enemies, dogs, wild beasts. There are so many attempts by commentators from the United States of America or the Western world because so many of you in this room, I'm assuming just because of the general culture, you love dogs, right? Not cats, but maybe dogs, right? We're dog lovers. These people are not dog lovers. This is not a compliment. And then there are so many commentators and pastors and sermons that I heard this week in prepping for this message that say, but, 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 but. Jesus uses the word for little dog. Almost like the puppy dog. You make of it what you want. It's true. It is not the normal word for like a wild beast dog that's got rabies and is like, you know. It's not that word. It is the word for a more domesticated little puppy dog. Does that soften the blow at all? Ladies, any of you want to be called little puppy dog? Or does it not show maybe even more inferiority of like you're just a weak little dog? I don't think we should try and soften the way that this might have been first received. Jesus says, it is not right to give the children's bread. Now, this is a metaphor. This whole thing that he's saying here on the screen is an analogy. It's a metaphor or a parable, if you would. Jesus has been using parables and said he's only going to speak in parables from this point out. And so here he is. He's using a parable and he says the children's bread. Who's that? The Jewish people are in the house of God and they're receiving the bread from God. And so he's saying, listen, it is not right for me to prioritize you over the Jewish people. It's not right. You guys ever been on an airplane before? You ever listen to those instructions or do you just tune those out and have your headphones in? Do you know those instructions when it says, when the mask falls down, if you have small little children, parents, please put your mask on first and then help your child. That's what Jesus is talking about here. There's a priority. There is a time slot of first you do this, then you do this. That's Jesus' response. It is now time and appropriate for me to help the Jewish community. It is not time for me to help you. You're a dog. 
When people compare and contrast Matthew versus Mark's account of this story, the priority of first versus second is more clear in Mark. And so I love the little comment that one commentator said for Matthew's story here. Matthew does not offer even a crumb of comfort by the way he tells this story. So she says, what? What would be your response? Any of you, would you be offended enough to be like, I'm done. See you later. Time to walk away. I'm done with this Jesus guy. He sounded great, but he's really just a big jerk. What would your response be? She says, yes. That's right. True. Not a normal word for dialogue conversations in the Greek language. Again, everything about this story pops. Every single word and phrase. Yes. I agree with you, Jesus. Lord. And then do you see the phrase on the screen, yet even? It's two words put together. Some translations do, but even. It's not a but. It's not a contrastive. It is a, I'm agreeing. I'm following your point, Jesus. I'm right there with you. Yes. And therefore, because your point is valid, let me tell you what I think. If I'm a dog, then I get to eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Mmm. That's good. Normally when Jesus is in a little dialogue discussion, he normally like outdoes the person and is like, ooh, little zinger, a little like, what are you going to say with that, mic drop? You know, any of that kind of stuff? That's normally the, the conversation with Jesus. Jesus says this last line, which in my mind I'm thinking this has to be the last straw. This lady's walking. And she says, Lord, yet even for if I'm a dog, then I get to eat the crumbs at the master's table. There's enough bread at the table and enough crumbs that are going to fall off of the master's table that there's plenty for me to eat. I'm not going anywhere then. So what's Jesus going to say in response? He answered her. What's it going to be? Another diss in the face? This is where the story comes together. Oh, woman. Now this is not woman. It is not that. You need to realize, again, we're crossing cultures. This would have not been derogatory. The dog one, I, d- I don't have any way to soften the dog one. I, honestly, as the, as the sermon continues and ends, other than to just say he's using the common language of their day. Like, oh, woman. The O is what really should stick out. It is emotional. It is unusually emphatic. Oh. So many different translations have just tried to say, like, wow. Like, that's Jesus' response. Wow? To who, though? Remember the story. Who are we talking about? Jesus is stepping back, and he is jaw-dropped. Wow. About a Canaanite woman who has been annoying them. And he says, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. 
And remember, she's coming to Jesus. The best way to, I think, understand this story is the daughter is not there. She's healed instantly, meaning Jesus is doing his healing powers from distances away where you don't even see this woman. So two questions I think we need to answer. First, Jesus says this woman's faith is great. What kind of faith is being pictured in this story? Because this needs to be the focus for us. This is the main takeaway for us, this point. The second question we're going to end up asking is, so what's the deal with Jesus? Because he seems maybe like he's racist, sexist, and just straight up rude. And we're going to hopefully kind of work through that for a second. But before we get there, let's just answer the question, what does faith look like in this story? And I think the best quotation I have for you is from a scholar named Daniel Bruner. He says this, She refuses to look at the shadow side of Jesus' remarks. Instead, she grasps at what he did not say and what he did say. He did not say go away, and he did not say no to her. Faith is holding on to Jesus for dear life, like a drowning person to a life raft, believing that Jesus is good even when his words do not seem to be. Faith is realizing this is my life raft and there's nowhere else to go. There's nothing else I can do. I'm staying right here even when that doesn't sound like the way I would like it to sound. Brothers, sisters, followers of Jesus, have you ever cried out to God and got nothing in response? Have you then done it again and again? Have you ever felt in not only the silence, but maybe even in the answer, an answer that you just didn't like? Faith is believing with all of your heart. There is nowhere else you can go, even when the words and the responses are not what you wanted to hear. Why is she so persistent? What does faith look like as we behold the picture before us in this woman? Is it that she is so persistent like you and I when we're working around the community and something is done to us that's wrong or offensive or we're ordering somewhere and we're like, this is not right. That person got their stuff before me. Hey, I have rights here. I was here before them. That's the way we argue. That's not the way she's arguing. She's not demanding her rights. She acknowledges that she has no rights. She agrees with Jesus. That's right, I'm a dog. This is so countercultural to you. Your mindset is that I should be persistent when I know I've got a case to make. When I know that there is something that I can stand and say, no, no, this is true about me. I'm not taking that. I'm an American. You know, like whatever it is that you think, like there's no chance that I'm going to let that person walk all over me like that. I've got rights. That's not the way she argues. Her persistence is on the very basis that she does not have rights, but that she believes that the one she's going to is merciful. 
friends, this, this is faith. This is the gospel. You do not come before God declaring your rights for his mercy. Well, I'm so deserving of this. She doesn't declare her deserving worth before Jesus. She admits how desperate she is. She's just a little puppy dog. Are you willing to admit you don't deserve anything? You've got no rights. Before the holy and just God, you have no rights. Can you admit it? Can you say yes to that the way she does? She knows that she's a dog, but she knows that Jesus is merciful. Have mercy on me. Do you realize that there's a pride that will keep you away from Jesus? A pride of thinking that you've got everything that you need, so you don't need him. But then there's the other side of that pride. It's a pride of thinking that you're so bad that he would not be generous to you. My guess is a lot of us in this room fall toward that other category. We're at church regularly. We're around Christians. We read our Bibles. We know we're sinners. The Holy Spirit's awakened our eyes to just how pitiful and dog-like we are. We know that. So then do you have the faith to know that Jesus is merciful to everyone? Has, has that really driven you to come to him even in the worst possible moments of your life? It's not because you're deserving or because you're so worthy. It's because he is so merciful. It's the whole point of the story. So from this story, massive work of repentance. Repentance is the word where we change our mind. We should stop thinking about ourselves as like, beating ourselves up and, and acting like that's true humility. No, that's pride. It's masked pride. Really? You're the worst case in the world and God's arm is not far enough to save you? Oh, don't think so little of him. Don't think so light of his mercy and grace towards sinners. This is what he came to do. It's what he loves to do. The unbelief to trust in God's mercy is the main reason most of us do not wake up desiring the kingdom of God. So look at Jesus like a life raft. And be persistent, not because you think you're so deserving for him to go save you, but because you know just at his very nature how merciful he is. Second question, what do we do with these comments about Jesus? This whole story is strange. It really is. Is he a racist? Is he sexist? Is he rude? I think there's various ways we could understand this. One possible interpretation that's been thrown out there is that what Jesus is doing in this story is he is displaying his inability to know everything about God's will. And this is the turning point in Jesus' life where he learns that his plan is not just to the Jewish people. Personally, it's not my favorite interpretation. 
I think it's, it's theologically probable. Jesus does not have complete and full knowledge of everything. There are things that he doesn't know. He's limited by his human body in some respects. Another possibility is to just say Jesus is, in fact, a racist, sexist, and a big jerk. That seems to really do contradictions with other passages of Scripture that say he was not a sinner. And being a big jerk to people sounds sinful, so does racism and sexism. So, not leaning toward that one either. Maybe Jesus is playing hard to get. So that the eventual triumph of this woman and her persistence becomes all the more emphatic for you and I. Even though he appears insensitive and downright rude, we must remember how the story ends. In other words, let me quote R.T. France. He's very helpful at explaining this idea. However you think about this story, the story does not end where it begins. In a racial standoff between a Jewish teacher and a Canaanite woman, when eventually her appeal is granted, there is no sign of reluctance on Jesus' part, but rather an exceptionally warm commendation of this woman's faith. It is only when the whole story is read, from beginning to end, that it can be properly understood. And the harsh racial language of the earlier part of the exchange is put in its true context, not as independent propositions, but as thrusts of some kind of verbal fencing match. The short point of quoting that is to say, you've got to read the whole story. Do not get hung up on this. Not because we want to just like make a little pass and be like, well, it's Jesus, a little exception. I think that there are cultural barriers for you and I that we live in a world where we are so easily offended. Anybody know, observe that? Go around in other places of the world. They're not as easily offended as Americans, number one. And number two, we are in a, a day and age where Americans are at hypersensitive about offending one another. And so you need to remember that you are coming into the story with your moral baggage Check the baggage at the door and realize that Jesus has a plan with this woman from the beginning and it's shown by the way the story ends. I don't know if that's satisfying or not to you, but I don't think that Jesus is unaware that he plans to make much of non-Jewish people, Gentile people, because he's already healed the centurion and his son earlier in Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. The stories, like I said, are very parallel to one another. He commends his faith. I do think that his words about the Jew first, the children at the table first, then the crumbs under the table, is just a, a metaphor to poetically talk about what we just read in Romans chapter 1. Salvation, the gospel, is salvation. It is the power of God to save the Jew first, and then the Gentile, then the Greek. So to wrap your mind around that, you need to make sure you're understanding just the whole story of the Bible in a nutshell. That's all. Just the whole story of the Bible. Human beings made in God's image, rebelled against God, 
and are sick. God chooses out of those human beings that there would be a group of people that would be like the doctors to heal the sickness. Problem in the story. The doctors contracted the disease. They're not just helping save and bring a light to all the nations. The nation of Israel is spreading the disease and looking just like all of their other nation counterparts, neighbors, Canaanites. Enter in Jesus of Nazareth. God has an option. Do away with the doctors that were going to heal all of the people or be true to his promises and his word and through the nation of Israel be a light to all the nations. The story of Christianity is that God is true to his promise. He is fulfilling that they will be a light to the nations. Jesus will be the embodiment of the nation of Israel and he will be the doctor that does not have the disease and he will heal all the nations. That's the short summary nutshell of the Bible story. And with that context in mind, it makes sense why Jesus would say what he does about, we've got to come to the Jewish people first. I have a mission, and the mission is to heal the nation of Israel with them, and that through them we're going to then make disciples of all the nations, which is the way Matthew 28, 18 to 20, that's how the whole story ends. So Matthew, the one that's compiling this story, he has repeatedly shown evidences before and after this story that the gospel is for all, all peoples, all tribes, all tongues, all languages, all ethnicities, all genders, whatever way you want to divide and separate peoples on the earth, Jesus is for them all, and he is the one uniter that brings them all together. And how does he do that? How does Jesus bring people who are bitter enemies, Jews and Canaanites, together? How does he bring Jewish people in the 1940s and 50s with German concentration camp soldiers, how could those people sit around the same table together? Or in the 1980s and 90s in South Africa during the apartheid, whites and blacks being segregated like we have never seen, I think, in almost any country or civilization, or in our own country's history, in our current racisms, the Hutus and Tutsis in Rwanda. We could just keep going. This is what we do as humans. We're sick. But Jesus, the great uniter, brings us together. But how? Because the story of the gospel ends with Jesus becoming the little dog cast out from the Father's table. He sits at the table at the upper room and he becomes the lamb who would be slaughtered for the uniting of all tribes and peoples. He becomes the little dog. Why do we not shake our fist at Jesus when we read this story? Because the way the story ends, not just this one, although that's a good enough answer for me, but the way the whole story ends. Jesus doesn't just call someone a dog to be rude but to expose the purity of the faith of her heart, to show her persistence, to show that she says, yeah, you're right. I don't have any rights, but I'm not going anywhere. You have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? And then Jesus heals her. If he wanted to just get her away, then he should have just given her away, but the fact that he heals her. And we know that all 
spiritual, emotional, physical healing happens and brings together all tribes and nations and tongues and languages through the cross of Christ where Jesus, metaphorically speaking, becomes the dog, the outsider, the one eating the crumbs at the table. Until you see that Jesus is the dog, even though he had the right to not just sit at the table, but he is the master of the feast, then you'll never unite with people that you hate. You'll never look at that family member that you're struggling with, the neighbor that's bothering you, the people that are annoying you in your workplace. How are you going to relate with love and compassion and mercy toward people like that. When you realize you have no rights. And in that pitiful position, you see the mercy of God to take your place. You have no way to ever walk with your chest puffed out. You have nothing to make claim to say, well, listen, I've got it all figured out. I'm a Christian. That's an oxymoron that does not go together. You're Christians because of the mercy and grace of Jesus through his death on the cross. Have you heard the little phrase, the ground is level at the cross? We're all just beggars, hungry, needing some bread. When we admit that we've got nothing and that he is everything, then you've got nothing to boast about. All boasting ceased because all of our salvation is a gift of his mercy. So therefore, you shouldn't look down on anybody. You look side to side with people and realize it's flat. We're on the same page. And when people are being treated poorly, we're going to try and pull them up. And when people are looking down on us, we don't care. Why would you get so offended? Some of it's probably true. So behold, not the woman and her faith, even after becoming a dog, and in spite of that per persevering and pressing on, but behold the Christ and see him. We're going to take the Lord's table now. But before we do so, I want to close with this quote. It's from Thomas Cranmer. This is one of the prayers that Christians have prayed for centuries. Hundreds, thousands upon thousands of Christians have prayed this prayer before they take the Lord's table. Follow along as I read it. We do not presume to come to your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. We come to the table now not because we are deserving but because his property, the very existence of the one who has spread the feast, is mercy. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus, on whom we have no right to come to you. There is no other name under heaven by which we must proclaim and declare. There is no other basis for us to pray and speak to you. And so as we do so, we speak our thanks. We say, Jesus, thank you. We were the Canaanite dog. We were the enemy. We were the ones that should have been pushed off. 
but you brought us in. And you gave us a seat. A seat at your right hand where Christ is seated in the heavenlies. God, we thank you for union with Jesus Christ. And because of that, it humbles us. Because of that, it lifts us up. And it does both all at the same time. We thank you, God, for the power of the gospel. The Jew first, then the Greek, the power of the gospel that unites and brings together people from every walk and way of the world. God, we thank you that there is a power that can divide and break down the walls. Break down the dividing walls and the barriers that are prohibiting us from having union with one another. And so our prayer is that Embassy Church would be a church of all nations, that we would never be marked out by judgmentalism, that we would be known for our love for all kinds of peoples, and those that are feeling, for whatever reason, ethnicity, race, gender, issues of any sort, socioeconomic status. We pray, God, that there would be a sense of welcoming, of feeling at home, of feeling loved in this place, around your table. And so we're just grateful for the opportunity and chance. Do this, we pray in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen.